0: So, tonight and tomorrow night, and uh, the night after that, kind of form another little um, trinity. And uh, tonight and tomorrow in particular, I want to uh, talk about the nature of mind. I know John has been touching on this a little bit, but I want to (coughs) go, go into it from a practice point of view. Um... And I thought, rather than kind of cram it into one very long, complex, dense talk, I'll um, make it two very long, complex, dense talks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just kidding. I hope. <laughs> um, okay, so the nature of mind. A few, a few things um, t- to start. It kind of pre- precursors. What we're going to end up saying is that awareness is empty. Awareness lacks inherent existence. That's something very profound to say. It's something very, very mysterious and profound to say. And that's where we're going, so I'll put that out right away. But again, let me me preface the whole thing. Whether we're consciously suffering at any time or not, at times there's no obvious suffering going on. Whether we are or we aren't, we can always pitch practice at different levels. So what I mean by that is, um, we have a difficulty. It might be not even a matter of meditation that needs fixing. It's actually a matter of, you know, doing something in life, having a communication with something, someone, changing, changing a job, something actually just on that level, and right action and, and that kind of thing, or it may be. <coughs> that what's required is just a very simple mindfulness, a very simple meeting with and being with the experience. It may be that we need to bring in some metta or some compassion, some some lovely qualities of heart to to uh, reinforce the uh, the being. It may be that we contemplate impermanence or contemplate uh, anatta, that, that things as not me, not mine. It may be that we contemplate objects as empty. All of that's available And also the level of contemplating the mind or awareness. And in this talk I'm using them as interchangeable. The mind or awareness is empty. All of that ends up being available to us gradually as practitioners. And it's not necessarily the case that it's all... You know, we could say that uh, contemplating the emptiness of the mind or awareness is, is the deepest level of practice. It's like cutting suffering at the root but that doesn't mean it's always the most appropriate practice. Okay, so that's, that's really, really important. What, might, might, something much simpler um, might be more appropriate in, in a situation. But we could say that seeing the emptiness of awareness is kind of the deepest level of, uh, of seeing uh, that's available in practice. You could say that. So, um, I just want to touch again a little bit on attitude. Um, And I've talked about this enough, and I'm I'm not going to repeat uh, the talks I've already given about it. But I hope you can enjoy, I hope you can enjoy listening to this. And to me that's quite important. Is it possible to actually listen to a talk like this and enjoy it, or tomorrow night? And so it might be. It might be that you're listening and something is said, or another time you read something you listen to another talk, and something said and, and we don't understand. And then right, in, right quickly comes in the inner critic. I don't get it. I'm stupid. I'm not far enough in my practice. I'll never da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, it might be okay that that voice is around. It just might be okay. And it can be doing its thing and rabbiting on, but perhaps we don't have to fully buy into it. Perhaps we don't have to completely believe it, that it's just there functioning, doing what it does best, uh, which is basically trashing you, and, um, and it's okay. It's okay, and it's just rabbiting on and on, and the talk's going on, or you're reading, and, and it's, it's okay. You don't don't have to believe it, just let it do its thing. So really what I want to do uh, these, these next few talks is <clears throat> fill out the map of practice fill out the map of practice and it's really really okay and i really want to stress this it's really okay if now in this duration of the rest of the retreat you don't practice with any of this of what i'm talking about so it's totally okay to some people it's just it's not where practice is right now and that's totally fine i'm i'm painting a map um And you can file it away for later, or it uh, it can just provide you with a sense of orientation of where you might be going, but it's really, really okay. So I hope it's possible to kind of sit back and kind of enjoy uh, a a picture of a map, a slideshow of a map, um, and still be engaged. And still be engaged, not just turn off because it doesn't seem to apply to me right now. So if I say, if someone says, if the Buddha says, the mind or awareness is empty that can seem very abstract, it can seem like, what does that even mean? And more, more, moreover, what does it have to do with me? If, if that's just intellectual, uh, us saying that the awareness lacks inherent existence, if it's just a kind of, oh, I see, that's what I'm supposed to believe, or I can um, see that it must be so logically... Uh, that awareness, which we've actually already talked about a little bit in here already, if it's just on that intellectual level, it's not going to have much of an impact in terms of the freedom. It's it's just, you know, we can be in the camp of those who are right and say, yeah, my team says awareness has no inherent existence and your team is rubbish. (laughs) And um, (laughs) so so what? It's it's really not going to make any difference to the felt sense of freedom. But we're talking about... um, a le- what I'm interested in in painting a picture of how we can practice with this so it does make a profound, profound difference in one's life. Radical, radical cutting <coughs> of the, the level of, of, kind of existential suffering in life. And it's interesting, it's not even obvious, I think, it wouldn't perhaps be obvious to a lot of people, how, you know, if I, we have loads of talks in the library and if a talk was called The Emptiness of Awareness or something... Um, how many people would even pick that up? Because it seems like, well, what does that have to do with me? Uh, it doesn't seem to have much relevance to, say, my fear that I go through or my inner critic, say, or or whatever it is. But it is a level of practice. As I say, there's a huge unburdening that, that can come from actually seeing huge, huge unbur- unburdening. It's, it's the deepest level of freedom that's available. And I would say... Uh, that there's no awakening without seeing this level. There's no awakening without seeing this level. So it might seem like, you know, sometimes when we hear a talk like this or we read something like this, it's like, why fuss? Why fuss about all these different levels and what you really mean by saying it lacks inherent existence? And why be so picky? Well, because a lot is at stake. A lot is at stake in terms of the... the, um, depth and, and the fullness of freedom that's available. And so that's why be picky. In a way it's a lot, as I said one time, it's a lot easier not to be picky. It's a lot easier not to be fussy about these things. But um, we'll miss a lot. And then that, and this is all still precursor, but then the last thing is, again, remember that this really has to do with compassion. It absolutely has to do with compassion. So again, it can sound a bit like abstract. Perhaps, but it has everything to do with freedom and compassion. So, this point is worth repeating: when we say something is empty, this thing or that thing or awareness or whatever it is is empty. That that's not that's not a nihilism. It's not saying the thing doesn't exist. It's not kind of trashing something and saying everything's completely meaningless. So the other day. Um, uh, I think it was Tuesday, and Bridget asked this question. It's a really, really important question. And I had uh, said something about suffering being empty as well. And qu- quite rightly, you know, a little uneasy with that. It's like, well, what would that mean for compassion? Uh, but remember, saying something is empty is always, uh, for us as practitioners, it's a way of looking. It's a way of looking. So we pick up and put down suffering is empty. We pick up and put down, as I said, self is empty. We pick up and put down object, thing is empty, emotion is empty. And we pick up and put down awareness is empty. Um, like like uh, all of those, we pick them up put them down when they're helpful. And that helpful means they lead to freedom and compassion. So, for example, that suffering is empty. If I just kind of blab that suffering is empty and I don't really have a deep seeing of what that means I don't really have a deep uh, insight into that then it's just words and it's actually dangerous because it's, it's quite right as Bridget pointed out would it not then just lead to a kind of who cares who cares in the world and that's the last thing we want we want this to lead to compassion so you know it's got to rest all all this stuff to say something is empty has got to rest on a real seeing of that A real scene. Okay. So, in this talk, as I said, I'm going to use the word mind uh, interchangeably with awareness, consciousness, um, that which knows, um, the witness. I can't think of any more right now, but I'm sure there are a few more. Anyone? Any others? The seer. Yeah, all of that. Okay. Uh, I'm going to use them interchangeably but you should know that um, in the Dharma world, all those words are used differently at different times. In other words, I might, in another talk, you know, even not be consistent in terms of using mind one way, you know, one minute, and then in the next minute another way. And the same with consciousness. So it gets very confusing. So we can talk about mind being also including thoughts and emotions and uh, Vedana and intentions and consciousness and attention and in, you know all that. All that's mind, in other words, the four mental aggregates apart from the body. Um, but in this talk, what I'm really referring to is mind as uh, consciousness, Okay, so something uh, that seems very simple. And in a way, it's the last bastion, it's the last bastion of inherent existence. For a practitioner who's developing and going deeper and deeper and deeper, um, consciously or unconsciously, the last thing to uh, to be clung to as inherently existent, consciously or unconsciously, will be awareness, will be consciousness. And so the first thing we need to do, and actually this goes back to an earlier talk, is uh, in relationship to consciousness, awareness, is see that it's not self. Okay. So this goes back to the anatta practice. And being able to... Uh, just like we regard body sensations and thoughts as not-self, can I have a sense of consciousness in a moment and regard that too as not-self? It's actually a practice. Now that's, as I said in that talk earlier, it's much more subtle to do that than it is to let go of, say, identification with body sensations. It's much more subtle, but definitely possible if one's developing one's practice gradually of anattā. And so the emphasis again and again and again is on practice. We can practice that and develop the practice to a point where one's actually able to let go of identification with objects of consciousness, sensations and body sensations and thoughts and all the rest of it, and the uh, consciousness itself. So Ajahn Mahabua was... Uh, I think he's still alive, actually. He's very old. He's a, a, a great uh, Thai forest meditation master. And he... Um, has written or well, spoken about his sort of um, awakening experiences, uh, quite rare. And there was a point, he said, doing walking practice, he was at a monastery staying for a little while and doing a walking practice, and he said it was very, very silent, very, very silent. He was already very developed as a, as a practitioner. And a thought, kind of a voice, it emerged intuitively from inside, and it said... When there is a centre to the knowing, there will be suffering. When there is a centre to the knowing, there will be suffering. And he said that was a real turning point in his practice. He knew knew how he needed to practice them. However, a statement like that can be interpreted at two different levels. When there is a centre to the knowing, there is suffering, might mean when there is a centre in the self when I identify with it. And then it's on the level of anatta, of identifying with, uh, sorry, when there is a centre to knowing, of identifying with consciousness. But we're interested also in the level of shunyata, of emptiness of the awareness itself. So Ajahn statement can be interpreted at two different levels. When there is a centre to the knowing, then there is suffering. That could mean... If I take the center of knowing to be this self or here, then there's um, uh, there's a self-identification with consciousness. But what we're interested in is not just that level. We are interested in disidentifying with consciousness being able to do that, but we're also interested to know what does it mean to say that awareness not only doesn't belong to me, but it also lacks inherent existence itself. Okay, so there's there's a couple of levels, and the second one is a much deeper, uh, a much deeper knowing and understanding, a much deeper statement. So a little bit in this talk tonight and uh, perhaps tomorrow, I kind of want to map out how a practitioner might progress through this, might. Uh, but please remember, every kind of. Stage or level that i 'm in this hypothetical journey that I might say is is very freeing itself, so they 're all uh, stances or places stages of freedom so although it might please please understand this, although it might sound i 'm just dismissing dismissing dismissing, dismissing. I'm actually saying, that's fantastic, but it's not quite it. That's even more fantastic, but it's not quite it. That's absolutely wonderfully fantastic, it's not quite it, etc. So please, if I don't keep saying that, take that, <laughs> <take> that for given. <laughs> They're provisional freeing stances, okay, what I'm going to go through. And remember, I've already mentioned it in here, the, the beautiful, I, I think so wise, Dzogchen uh, aphorism. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. In other words... A practitioner does tend to move through certain stages of unfoldment and understanding, not exactly the same as another person, um, and we need to trust that experience and keep the questioning alive, keep that alive, because there's a there's a journey to fulfil. So I want to talk about this movement of practice. Now most people who are not particularly, um, what's the word, introspective or philosophically inclined, Um, probably wouldn't wonder too much about the nature of awareness, the nature of mind. It's not... It's almost like we take it for granted. And it's one of these funny things like the self-sense. I mentioned as meditators, we get very used to the self-sense. I remember talking with a friend who's... uh, A while ago, and she's not a practitioner, and I was using words like awareness and uh, things like that, and she said, what do you mean when you say that? So we live kind of... Everything we do is with awareness, and it's so much the kind of water we swim in that you can kind of uh, not wonder what it is, and that would be very normal. As one begins practicing, because we put, in these kind of traditions, a lot of emphasis on mindfulness and awareness, one begins, some people, begin wondering, well, what actually is it? Now, one way of conceiving of awareness, and I've had practitioners tell me this, and again, very helpful, but uh, also limited, is awareness is a mirror. Awareness is a mirror which reflects the world. Okay, And you can even find this image in certain texts, uh, Buddhist texts as well. Awareness as a mirror which reflects the world. Um, or even, um, not quite such a good... Uh, analogy but a kind of plane of glass that uh, we want to keep really clean so that we see the world pristinely and purely. Uh, Now that's helpful a mirror could be helpful the idea of awareness being a mirror could be helpful because the sense of a mirror as something in a way separate from the object it reflects and that separateness means that the mirror doesn't care how ugly the monster is that and frightening the monster is that, that stands in front of it. Do you, you understand? It's just so practicing with the sense of awareness like a mirror can actually be very helpful because it allows the mirror the mirror just stays as it is. It's not phased by what appears beautiful, ugly, fearful, etc. Doesn't matter. It just comes and goes, and not a problem for the mirror. It just the nature of the mirror is just to reflect and to stay in a way, and unaffected. And with that unaffectedness, it's going to come a lot of equanimity, a lot of equanimity. So really helpful, but there are problems there, and we've already touched on them in the retreat. The first one is the notion of a mirror, implicit in that notion is a reflection of things as they are. So when we put, it's like a clean mirror will reflect things as they are. In the retreat right now, we've been talking about the absence of the absence of being able to say this is how things are. Yeah, things are empty because they depend on the point of view. They depend on how much push and pull. They depend on the clinging, etc. Understand? So the notion of things as they are, uh, which is kind of implicit in the mirror, is not is not um, the the mirror analogy can't hold because of that. It also has a problem because a mirror is just sort of there and it's passive. A mirror is passive. And again, in practice, we can have a very, uh, sometimes a very profound sense of it feels as if awareness is passive. Awareness just naturally and effortlessly uh, reveals the world, uh, reflects, you know, is aware of things. So sometimes people say, just listen. You don't have to actually do anything to listen. Just being here, you will you will hear something. So awareness feels effortless. But tomorrow night in particular, when we get into some of the subtleties of dependent arising, uh, we'll actually see awareness is not passive, it's not effortless, even though it might seem to be in the first case. So that notion of passivity that's kind of implicit in the mirror also doesn't really hold water. Some of you will know, I've uh, heard of Hui Neng. He was the sixth Zen patriarch, and um, he was, if I remember, he worked in, like, the bakery or something at this monastery, and he was a real kind of nobody. And uh, I think, if I get the story right, the second Zen patriarch was aware that he was nearing death and wanted to find a successor. So he said, whoever writes the best poem on the wall, the best kind of, satori poem poem of enlightenment will, will become the third zen patriot will be my successor and the favorite was a guy named shen Hie, Shen Xiu, and he wrote this poem and it said our body is a mirror stand and our mind a mirror bright carefully we wipe them hour by hour and let no dust alight okay and for a while that was up there and everyone was like really profound, great, okay, he's going to get it. And then one evening, another, one night, overnight, another poem appeared, anonymous. There never has been a mirror stand. There never has been a mirror bright. There never has been a mind like that. Since all is void and empty, where can the dust alight? And that was Hui Neng, the little measy easy little baker or, or whatever, a baker's assistant or something in the monastery, and the uh, dying abbot said, that's my man. And uh, he became the third Zen patriarch. Okay, so the mirror. Another one that we, again, we, we can go through as practice, and some of you, uh, because I've actually deliberately talked about this on this retreat, is the notion of awareness as a kind of source a source of being, a ground of being. Now when we did, when I introduced the Chittamatra meditation at the um, beginning of the second week or thereabouts, uh, so there were two versions, and in the first version it was this sense of vast, spacious uh, mind out of which sounds arose, out of which objects arose, and then faded back into that, arising, disappearing. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, sense to, to hang out in and develop as a practice. Very helpful, because it brings a lot of equanimity, a lot of love, a lot of openness, a lot of freedom, etc. But, 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 it's still a perception. In other words, it's still an object of consciousness. We have a sense of a space out of which things are appearing. And as such, that space is a perception. As a perception, it's fabricated, and it's put together, and we can see it fading, and as a perception, it's still an object. Now, all of this stuff was actually around when the Buddha was alive. And uh, there's a, quite an extraordinary sutta. It's the first sutta in the Nikaya, And it's, it's quite long, and I've sort of extracted bits, which is still quite long, but I want to read it to you. And the Buddha goes to a group of monks and he says, let me tell you about the root of things. And, he, and the monk said, okay. And he says, an ordinary uninstructed person perceives the luminous realms as the luminous realms, perceives the great being, or what we could call God or Brahman, as, as the great being, perceives the dimension of infinite space as the dimension of infinite space, infinite consciousness, etc., infinite nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception, very deep, very expansive meditative state, similar to the the feeling of the ground of being, Uh, the totality, the all, and he goes through all this list of possible things and ends up with nirvana, perceives nirvana, Uh, perceives them as that thing, and then perceiving the luminous realms, infinite space, infinite consciousness, etc., nirvana as those things and he says, he, co- this person conceives things in the luminous realms, in infinite space, in infinite consciousness, in nirvana. And then for our purposes tonight, he conceives things coming out of the luminous realms, coming out of consciousness, coming out of nirvana, etc. He conceives all these things as mine. he delights in all these things. Why is that? Because he has not comprehended it, I tell you. And then he goes on to say, A practitioner who is a trainee, yearning for the unexcelled relief from bondage, his aspirations as yet unfulfilled, directly knows the luminous rounds as the luminous rounds, the infinite space, the infinite consciousness, the nirvana as nirvana, and directly knowing this as that, let him not conceive things in that. Okay, it's funny language, I hope it's making sense. Let him, and this is the important one, let him not conceive things coming out of that. So, conceive things coming out of that means this sense, in that big open awareness of, wow, it just emerged from the ground of being, and it fades back into it, means exactly that, exactly that. Let him not conceive things coming out of it. Let him not conceive things as mine, let him not delight in this thing. Why? so that he may comprehend it, I tell you, so that he may comprehend it. And then he finishes saying, An arahant, devoid of mental fermentations, who has attained completion, finished the task, laid down the burden, attained the true goal, destroyed the fetters of becoming, and is released through right knowledge, directly knows all these things as all these things, he does not conceive things, uh, about these things. He does not conceive things about these things. He does not conceive things coming out of the luminous realms, infinite space, infinite consciousness, the nothingness, the nirvana. does not conceive them as mind. does not delight in them, because he has comprehended it, I tell you. What's quite remarkable about that sutta is that most suttas end with the monks rejoicing in the Buddha's words. And this group of monks, it says, one of one or two equi- uh, occasions in the whole of the sutras, said the monks did not rejoice in the in the Buddha's words. They didn't want to hear that. <laughs> they didn't want to know. S-s-s- similar things are going on two thousand five hundred years later. It's um, it's. Qu- we talked about this a bit before, but, but briefly when when we talked about the Chitramatra, but. um, It's possible for someone just not to want to know and to to reject uh, that kind of uh, pickiness and questioning of it. another another um, possibility is um, actually this is touched on that so but the luminous mind and again practitioner and maybe some of you get a sense when everything's really quiet things really qu- it's almost like the sense is things things fade away and we're just left with an incredible sense of luminosity inside then lum- the mind itself feels luminous so again I'm going to read you a passage from from uh, again from the Pali Canon. I'm gonna read you two translations of it because partly what I want to say, without getting too scholastic about the whole thing, is that first of all there are very different translations, and secondly the texts seem to contradict each other. Even the Pali Canon seems to contradict each other in different places itself in different places. So listen to this Luminous is the mind, brightly shining but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This this unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. That's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. Listen to it. Yeah, okay. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is coloured by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. That's one translation, which is a very appealing and attractive translation. Uh, my teacher... <laughs> that's quite a loose translation, by the way. It's quite a, very, very loose, based on the Pali. Uh, one of my teachers translated it. Luminous is the Mind. Uh, it's actually very repetitive in the Pali, and it lacks some of the sort of poetry of that first one. And it is defiled by incoming defilement. And not knowing this... Uh, when people don't know this, there is no development of the mind. Then it says, luminous is the mind, and it can be freed from incoming defilements. It's quite different. Uh, and, and for someone who doesn't see that, there is no development of the mind. Okay. Now, I'm not a Pali scholar, um, but I just want to point out... Uh, there's quite a lot of manipulation of translations depending on what the desired meaning is. Who's the first one? Do you really want to know? Yeah. You don't want to tell us, The Buddha has a sutta, it's called... Um, what is it called? I can't remember what it's called, but it's about... Um, it's about not not causing problems in, in a way. And and he says, when you're disputing a teaching, focus on the teaching and not the person. At least I think that's what the Buddha says. It makes a lot of sense to me that we can get into picky, you know. Um, l- let's put it this way. I mean, I'll tell you. Okay, it's, it's Gil Fr- Fronstal, okay? And the second one is from Ajahn Um What... I want to say, though, is, again, go back to what I said at the beginning of the talk, which is these are all beautiful, provisional, very freeing stances to develop. So, wouldn't question this, would just question it as an ultimate truth. Okay, so that's all. P- please remember that. Um, I, I dislike quibbling in the extreme, although I, I find myself doing it a lot just by the nature of, of you know teaching and trying to be really clear about things that need, I feel need clarity. But um, So please remember, it's... If we can have a sense of that, exactly what he's talking about, that's so freeing. It's such a deep resource in practice. Is it the final resting place? Is it the ultimate truth? Do we hang up our hat there? No, I hope not. I hope not. Um, Ajahn Mahabua again, this great Thai teacher, listen to his what he has to say about this. The radiant mind, the luminous mind, that is ignorance. That's the embodiment of ignorance. <laughs> so it's like, turned it right around. He it was hunting for, for ignorance. He was hun- so the last thing I have to find before I become an arahant is ignorance, and finds it as the luminous mind. So the texts contradict themselves, translations contradict themselves, even inside the Pali Canon it's contradictory. Again though I say, if luminosity is an object, in other words, if it's a perception of luminosity, that can't be the nature of the mind, because it's a perception, it's an object, right? Do you see that? Yeah. yeah? Um, so it's still in pers- in the realm of perception itself, it can't be awareness itself. Now when I, I talked about the um I threw out very, very briefly, and it's possible no one even caught it, but I, did, I threw out very briefly Sometimes we get this sense of a very spacious awareness, and it's almost like a global awareness, and that gets really strong. and Everything belongs to this, everything belongs to it, everything is that. Then you can go, instead of saying, that's it, you can go a step further by saying, well, that's an impression in awareness too. The sense of awareness is also an impression in awareness, and just see what happens. It's kind of going one step further. Without getting too sectarian about this, when there is this um, highlighting of the, the luminosity of the mind as something really to to uh, as a kind of final resting place, oftentimes the people um, who are uh, pointing to that point at another uh, sutta and say, where the Buddha also talks about the luminous mind in the Pali Canon, and it equates it with consciousness without feature, without uh, limit, etc., and luminous all around. But that second sutta goes on to say that that consciousness, luminous, without feature, um, etc., does not partake of anything at all in the phenomenal world. In other words, it doesn't know any objects, okay? So if you say they're the same thing, then then how could we say in in the first quotation, how is such a mind defiled or even colored if it has nothing to do with any objects? You understand? It's not partaking of that. And how possibly could we develop something that has no characteristics? You can't... something needs characteristics to be able to develop it. If something is devoid of characteristics, it's impossible to develop it. And then that quote there it says both that it's defiled or coloured and that you can develop it. So there's... I'm highlighting a, a difficulty here. And, and all this, what I'm talking about in the talks tonight, I have to say, um, Buddhists have been arguing about this for millennia. You know, it's not, um, <laughs> it's not a fresh controversy. So it's, it's quite heated and uh, quite a lot to it. At some point in all this, as practice deepens and and one reads and one hears and one talks about certain levels of practice, there's another problem coming in, which is that language gets very um, poor. All the language starts to sound pretty similar. So two experiences or two insights of quite different depth might be described in the same language, and a person might, uh, well, it's confusing... So if one goes really hunting through the texts, and the um, Mahayana texts as well, and says, what does this word luminous mean? It's used a lot. It's used a lot. The mind is luminous. used a lot. Eventually, what you'll find is luminous means purity. And then you say, OK, what does purity mean? Purity, guess what? It means empty. Empty of inherent existence. So using this word luminous, I don't know why exactly, but what it really means is empty of inherent existence. Another, another word that's used a lot, and again gets very uh, confused, is the word, uh, say, uh, the nature of awareness is vast like space. And again, you, you will hear that a lot, a lot, a lot. And again, with this Chittamatra meditation, it's something that we can really have in meditation, that experience, that sense. Beautiful, profound, freeing, not to be thrown out too early. But again, one goes hunting for what does that actually mean. And space uh, means slightly different things in technical Dharma language. It means an absence of obstruction or contact. So we tend to think, well, that's space. It's like it's this thing, but actually it's an absence of something. So it's like uh, in, in another sutra it says... You have to analyze, when uh, when someone says, we see space, what are they actually seeing? What, it's not that they're seeing anything, it's the absence of something there, that they're perceiving as space. And it's similar with the mind, it's a kind of absence rather than a thing that has the nature of space. So like I said, I, I know this sounds very picky, but there will come a point, if the integrity is alive in practice and if one cares, and if one keeps that questioning integrity alive, these will be questions that one is desperate, desperate, uh, yearning to, to have some clarity about. And it, it, I'm aware that it may sound incredibly picky, and I don't know, all right, it may not, but uh, uh, there comes a point when it's actually very important. Again, if we have a sense of space, it's still a perception, it's still an object. It can't be awareness itself. So the Buddha in the Pali Canon, again, says, Consciousness, when examined, is empty, void, and without substance. Now, if he just says that, empty, void, and without substance, again, with those words, we could, well, that sounds like space, doesn't it? Empty, void, without substance, like space, right? But he goes on to say, uh, empty, void, without substance, like a magician's trick. Like a magician's trick. Uh, In other words, there's some kind of illusion going on, the name of which is dependent arising, which we'll talk about tomorrow, some kind of illusion going on that causes things to appear as if they exist. So it's not just empty void without substance in the way that space is. It's like a magician's trick. And as such, it's a dependent arising. It lacks inherent existence. So, if this word luminosity for example we do come across an awful lot if that actually means empty purity which actually means empty and another word that you come across against uh, across is um, clarity describing the nature of awareness nature of mind Lu- luminosity and clarity are the, the kind of uh, characteristics of the nature of mind but clarity again when you hunt around for what it means it means actually having the capacity to know or cognizing, being conscious So what you've got then is empty of inherent existence and knowing. So what it turns out, rather than there is something which is luminous and clear, it's rather there is knowing, but that knowing is empty of inherent existence. Uh, And there is no inherently existing entity of knowing or substance of awareness or mind. So tonight, uh, in what's left, and tomorrow night in particular, what does that actually mean, to say awareness is empty of inherent existence? So, again, to reiterate, the Chitta-Matra and everything that comes out of that is such a a beautiful and profound and really, really excellent, helpful basis in practice. You can really develop that practice and go a long way with it. And it has... it's so attractive as well, um, you know, vastness, luminosity, the notion of a, a source of things, a ground of being, a very attractive notions at heart level as well, and they have the added attraction, that kind of conception, the added attraction of being very simple, and when I talked about conceptuality, whenever it was. It's like this attraction we have as human beings to simplicity, <clears throat> and we don't, There's not much there to think about, like you just kind of let everything be in the space, let awareness be awareness, and everything can like it doesn't take much to think about it it feels non-conceptual you see, I just let everything be, it's very very simple, it feels non-conceptual but actually it's still conceptual, there's still um, subtle conceptuality holding the whole thing in place can you just run, run back the clear and luminous yeah, so what I was saying, if Okay, if the word luminous actually means empty of inherent existence, it turns out that's what it means. Now, why they choose the word luminous, I don't know. Why don't they just say empty of inherent existence? I'm not sure. But that, that's what it turns out it really means. So you've got empty of inherent existence, and the other word is clarity. And what it turns out clarity really means is just cognizing, knowing. So what you've got is knowing that's empty of inherent existence, rather than a substance that is luminous and clear. Okay, it's quite different. And and what I wanted to go into, especially tomorrow, is what does it actually mean to say awareness is this empty inherent existence? So this Chitta Matra, be- beautiful, so helpful, vast, luminous, the source, etc., can be an excellent basis for the next stage, which we might call, uh, you could call kind of Mahamudra or, or something like that. So third Kamapa, uh, absolutely amazing uh, a uh, yogi and teacher from the you know, 13th and 14th centuries in Tibet. Looking at an object, there is none. I see it as mind. Looking at an object, I s- there is none. I see it as mind. So far, chitamatra, right? Just chitamatra. But Then he goes on. Looking for mind, mind is not there. It lacks any essence. I'll just finish the stanza. Looking at both dualistic clinging is freed on its own. May I realize luminosity, the enduring condition of mind. And again, he's using, using luminosity in that same way. But the important line here is the second one, going beyond the Chitta Mantra and saying, looking for mind, mind is not there, it lacks any essence. This is, this is what I want to explore. So, how are we going to discover that mind lacks any essence? Um, in the Mahamudra tradition, uh, or rather the Kagyu Mahamudra tradition, actually no, uh, not just the Kagyu, but m- many Mahamudra traditions, um, the first thing is to find that mind is actually unfindable. So the first thing one does is go looking for the mind and see if you can find it. So, And what one finds is that you can't find it. So, uh, Shanti Deva, I'm going to read you a bunch of quotes now, I hope it's okay. Shantideva, since mind has not been seen by anyone, there is no benefit in saying that it is self-aware and self-illuminating, which is a kind of Chittamatra claim, It just mind doesn't know objects, it just knows itself. When it is not seen by anyone, then we, whether it is illuminating or not illuminating is like the graceful stance of a barren woman's child. That? <laughs> Even to talk about it is meaningless. It's meaningless. If you can't find mind, okay, I'll, I'll read a few of these. Shantideva again, a different, different passage. Mind can be found, awareness can be found neither inside, outside, nor elsewhere. It is not a combination of inside and outside, um, actually, or a combination of anything else, and neither it is, is it something apart. It is not the slightest thing. The very nature of sentient beings is nirvana. So that last line is interesting. The very nature of sentient beings is nirvana. If I can't find anything here at all, not in the body, not in the mental aggregates, not in consciousness that lacks any, that has any inherent existence, you could say, my, my very nature, our very nature of sentient beings is, is peace. There's nothing there inherently to disturb. We'll come back to that. Um, Another one, talking to a guy named Osung. Osung, mind does not exist inside. It also does not exist outside. It also isn't observed to be between the two. Osung, there is no mind to discover, none to show, none to support, none to appear, none to perceive, none to form an idea of, none that abides. Osung, None of the Buddhas has ever seen, sees, or will see mind. Another one. Now it starts to get a little more involved, actually. Uh, Investigate whether this thing you call mind is blue, yellow, red, white, maroon, or transparent whether it is pure or impure, permanent or impermanent, and whether it is endowed with form or not. Mind has no physical form. It cannot be shown. It does not manifest. It is intangible. It does not cognize. It resides neither inside, outside, nor anywhere in between. Thus, it is utterly pure, totally non-existent. There is nothing of it to liberate. It is the very nature of Dharma-Data. Datta. is the very nature of ultimate reality, you could say. Last one for now. Um, There's a reason I'm reading all these. I'll explain in a minute. How should one properly understand one's own mind to be? Like this. Even if you search thoroughly for it as having an aspect, colour, shape, location, as a form, sensation, perception, thought, configuration, or consciousness as a self or possessed by a self, as something to grasp or apprehend, as pure or impure, as a constituent or sense field, or in any other way at all, you won't observe it. This Lord secret one is the portal to the totally pure bodhicitta of a bodhisattva. There's something about this non-finding that's leading us very deep. Now... I read them in that order for a a specific reason, because we can go hunting for the mind and not look very thoroughly for it. So, for instance, if I say, where's the mind? It doesn't have any form. You can't find it as anything tangible. It doesn't have a color. It has no shape. Okay, Uh, that's fine. And I, I realize I can't find the mind. But some, in the middle of some of those quotes, as I went on, were saying things like, it does not cognize, which basically saying, awareness is not aware. It was. It was. I don't know if anyone caught it. Did you catch it? <laughs> it was. It was in there. It would be easy to go through passages like that and just focus on the very obvious unfindabilities, um, and easy to miss the deeper ones and the more kind of um, perplexing ones. Uh, those are also the more thorough ones and the ones that are really going to do the trick in terms of cutting suffering at root. So the Dalai Lama uh, has a lovely quote. Um, or rather very clear in explaining this, talks about conventional nature of mind and ultimate nature of mind. The conventional nature of mind is uh, that it does not exist as anything physical. Okay? I can't see it as anything physical. It lacks anything tangible. Any object can appear to it, like the space or the mirror, and it exists as an entity of mere knowing. Okay. <clears throat> now he says... Even that level, the conventional level, is actually quite difficult to realise. But that's that's actually the uh, well, even a little bit beyond the So We need to practice till we can see that level of mind, the conventional level of mind. Can you say that level again? Uh, conventionally, mind does not exist as anything physical. It lacks anything tangible. Any object can appear to it, and it exists as an entity of mere knowing. I hope you guys are okay with this. I know, I know. as I said, going back to the beginning of the talk, it's going to sound very abstract for some, but why I'm mentioning all this is because there comes a point in practice <clears throat> when that's what one sees of the mind. One reaches a point when one actually does see the conventional level of mind, lacking anything physical, not tangible, anything can appear to it. It's just a kind of knowing. And one might think that I have, I have realized the ultimate nature of mind. And that's exactly what the Dalai Lama is pointing to—not quite yet being the case, because then we need to analyze further and deeper, and understand deeper, and actually come to what's the ultimate nature of mind. Okay, so this is a tall order. It's a tall order, but when one glimpses the ultimate nature of mind, that's something extremely profound, and it. Um, to say it, it's a, it's a, a, a the practice moves to a whole other level. It radicalizes the practice like nothing nothing else. So Gampopa was <clears throat> one of the main students of Milarepa and a great great teacher, and he said there are three problems with giving inherent existence to awareness. The first one is this unfindability. For me and i 'll say the other two but for me the unfindability what I've just talked about is actually it doesn't quite do it so I'm saying this because you will come across teachings that the the, the all they give for the nature of mind is is what we've just said as the conventional nature of mind and then it stops there for me if i if I see that it's unfindable in that way it doesn't quite cut it at the same root. It doesn't it doesn't go uh, deeply enough. And it's not completely convincing. Just because I can't find something, just because I can't see something, does it mean that it doesn't actually exist inherently. I mean, to me, it doesn't totally... That's not enough of a reason. I don't know how you feel, but I don't, I don't feel that it's, it's enough of a reason. Just because I can't see it. Second one has to do with... Um, the knowing and the known, and, and the relationship between the knowing and the known, which we touched on a little bit and I want to go into. And the third one actually has to do with the emptiness of time, which I want to reverse, uh, re- reserve for to- tomorrow. So Let's explore this. The s- oh. Time. Oh. Time. <clears throat> so the second one is uh, relates to consciousness m- meaning a knowing, okay? and We've talked about this. It's very easy because there's a noun in English Consciousness, awareness, to think of a thing, because nouns usually refer to things. But if we replace it by a verb, knowing, it's a, a, a process, an activity. And Buddha says, consciousness is knowing, and it's knowing in terms of the six senses and their objects. So we know sight, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts and images, mind, uh, mind, mind states, etc., now, knowing, as we've already talked about this, but knowing needs a known, okay? Knowing needs a known. And what does a known need? It needs knowing, okay? Knowing needs a known, and a known needs knowing, okay? There's no known without knowing, and there's no knowing without something known. <laughs> right? The two are... <laughs> Does everyone get that? Yeah? The, the two things are mutually dependent. They're mutually dependent. Now, two things that are mutually dependent cannot have inherent existence. Two things that are mutually dependent cannot have inherent existence. Because, um, in a way, both have to precede each other to be a cause for the other. They can't be we've been through this before with something else, can't be simultaneous because there's no time for one to cause the other. So we talked about Vedana and the reaction also being mutually dependent and therefore mutually empty, but the same thing with consciousness and perception, knowing and known, okay? They always go together. You can't have one without the other. So what does that mean? They're the same thing? Does it mean they're the same thing, that my consciousness becomes a mat when I see a mat? My consciousness becomes an elephant when I see an elephant? They're not the same, but they're not different either. You can't actually separate them. It's a bit like the left and right of a stick, again. They're not separatable. You can't have one without the other. They're not. You can't say they're the same, you can't say they're different. They lack uh, inherent existence. They lack a separate, independent existence. Arise um, well, in a way they can, but they can't arise simultaneously as two inherently existing things arising simultaneously. So if, if you say they arise simultaneously, then you can't then say that one is a cause for the other. Yeah, that's all. But, um, <clears throat> but we can go further with this. We've talked thus far on the retreat about the known perceptions, and we talked on and on and on about the known being empty. Empty. It depends. Uh, it's fabricated, it's dependent. rising, depends um, how much push and pull, how much uh, clinging, how much identification. The known is dependent and so empty. So in a way, consciousness, you could say, is leaning on something empty. It's leaning on a vacuum. It's got. It's got. It's being supported by something that actually isn't really there. So, in some sense, consciousness is groundless. You could say is actually in its true nature is. Although it's a little weird with language, you could say it's unsupported. So objects depend on the mind, as we've talked a lot about. So they are empty. They depend on the mind. And now we're saying that the mind, consciousness, depends on objects. No object, no knowing, no consciousness. And the mind depends on something, objects, which are empty. You have two emptinesses leaning on each other, two nothings (laughs) flopping through each other. We can add something, I'm going to talk about this, in, not tomorrow, but the night after, in that this fading that I've been talking about, uh, this, an object phase, etc., it can actually go all the way, which actually came up in question and answer, it go all the way beyond the six sense consciousnesses. All the way to not actually being conscious of anything in the realm of the six sense consciousnesses. And then one asks again, well, one sees that it fades dependent on letting go. Dependent on relaxing the clinging, dependent on not, identi- not identifying, in other words, saying the other way around more accurately, consciousness appears dependent on clinging. Consciousness, for its existence, is dependent on clinging, dependent on identification. So is it something real then? Is it something really real? It's also fabricated the way everything else is. It's fabricated by clinging. It's fabricated by self-identification, me mining, and it's fabricated by delusion. Just the notion that things are inherent existence will fabricate consciousness. If this ceases, what happens to mind? Say again. Well, if this ceases, what happens to mind? I'll talk about it the day after tomorrow. <laughs> um. Tomorrow I will talk about the emptiness of time, which is Gampopa's third reason for the impossibility of awareness having inherent existence, and also talk about some of the other reasons in terms of dependent arising, very very subtle levels of dependent arising. For me, that totally... uh, Because there could still be a little bit of unsureness here, even at the level I've just said, but that just chops it, at least for me anyway. I want to talk a bit more about this, because remember... I'm not um, throwing out stuff now for a kind of um, intellectual ownership or or something like that. What I'm talking about is actually the possibility of being able to practice with this. And as I said at the talk, it might not be yet, but it's there for us uh, if we want it eventually, at some point. And it might not take the years that you think it takes. So how would one do this? Well... Here I am in meditation, and it's going okay, and things are quite... Even if it's not going okay, and I start to contemplate at a level that I am... uh, At a level that feels like it works to me. So if that's the anatta, or if it's that um, I'm ready to see, just look at things and see that they're empty, whatever. But eventually it gets to the point where... um, I'm able to have look at whatever is in consciousness whatever that is a sensation a mind state a perception of whatever and look at it and hold it there in the attention and look at it and say empty empty and that inner saying and viewing of it as em- as empty it needs it's resting on a conviction so it's not just em- it's not just empty words meaningless words it's uh one has practiced enough that one really really can look at something and say, I know you're empty, and it begins to have an effect on that thing that the thing fades, and the thing starts fading a little bit. But as you're contemplating the emptiness of this thing, um, almost then including a sense of consciousness in that moment too. So there's a sense of the perception and a sense of consciousness as well. And reflecting quietly, background of awareness, that it's dependent, the consciousness is dependent on, um, it's not separate on the object that is empty. So so just going through what we've just talked about, actually very subtly, very quietly in that moment, then you're actually in a kind of, uh, one kind of uh, movement of mind, you're seeing the emptiness of the object and the consciousness that knows it. And, and you're looking at you're kind of holding both and contemplating both, okay. <coughs> In a way, the, the deeper this goes, it's also going kind of deeper into this whole business that we talked about, this holy disinterest. One has become disinterested in phenomena, and then one becomes disinterested in a in a uh, you know in a beautiful way in 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 consciousness as well. As the Buddha says, one doesn't relish uh, phenomena, and one doesn't relish consciousness. Remember that doesn't mean a kind of blah meaninglessness. Um, now, you can do this in quite. Um, in quite a kind of intense way. In other words, you've really got some sense of perception. Maybe it's a sense of stillness inside, or a sense of space. And you've really got it, kind of quite intensely in the focus. This this moment right there. And you're bringing that. You're seeing it's empty, and then you're contemplating the consciousness. So you can do it quite focused um, and intensely, or you can do it in a much more relaxed way. And they're both good. And and eventually, one we'll experience with both. And much more relaxed, spacious sense of. Um, Almost like everything is, is mind, and that mind, too, doesn't exist. So in a, in a kind of restful, resting back, or a more intense way, in a more focused way, or a more spacious way. There's also a big debate, in the, mostly among the Tibetan traditions, whether one continues analysing in the meditation. In other words, you can have some degree of samadhi and, and slightly start reflecting on the emptinesses there. And other schools say, no, you should absolutely never do that, etc., I'm actually happy both ways. What it rests on is the conviction that things are empty. So even if you're not actually going through the reasoning, you have to have really seen it and felt it to bring it into the meditation. So, so just to end again, I, I. It's very possible that you know all this sounds like extreme quibbling or pickiness or don't don't really know what all the fuss is about, etc and it's possible that um you know a person might hear this or or whatever and say well how do you know which of all these is is the real one you know i can find te- cause as i said you can find texts that say any range of the stages that i've uh, that i've gone through you can, you can absolutely find that you can find material to support that any level there how would you know um it's possible to know a certain level or a certain state, a certain level of understanding and the kind of states of freedom and expansiveness that come with that, and then actually to move beyond that, to let go of it, to see the emptiness of uh, something there and go beyond it. And what happens is that the felt sense of freedom deepens, and it's like shifting gears in a car. You, you, you sense, oh, we're in a whole new ballpark here. We're in a whole, the, whole, the whole thing has moved to another level, and it actually feels that. movement, and then one looks back on where one's come from and actually realizes, oh, I see, where I was before, there was a a clinging, conscious or unconscious, deliberate or not deliberate, at something there that I was taking to have inherent existence. And then I went beyond that. And going beyond that, there's a a much, uh, much deeper level of freedom and, and, and understanding. But before I either believed in that thing as inherent existence, or I didn't realize that I was clinging to it as inherent existence. So, in a way, and again, if this all sounds like a little bit picky and irrelevant, it's good to remember, very, very, very safe, almost guaranteed, that you are clinging to something as inherently existent unless you're deliberately not. Okay? That is the default, automatic, taken for granted, unquestioned way the mind works. That's what the Buddha means when he talks about delusion. That we just habitually see things as inherently existent. So I've had people say to me, No, I don't I don't but I'm not thinking that that's that big open space of awareness is inherently existent. But they're not thinking that it's not. And so, unconsciously, automatically, they will be. And that's, that's a given. And so just, this goes for everything. Assume that unless you're deliberately contemplating something as empty, you are seeing it as inherently existent. Okay? It's just the way the mind works until you're a Buddha. Um, so you can pretty much safely assume. Okay, so I'm gonna stop in in a way that that was part one. And um, pick this up tomorrow night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Seed, please visit DharmaSeed.org slash. Donate.